All right, good evening, everybody. We uh, are starting our second lesson tonight, but before we do, um, I actually wanted to, we left a little bit at the end of lesson one, just kind of as means of a review. Um, I wanna take a look at uh, two things, hopefully um, won't take very long, but just wanted to point out that when we get to the end of every lesson, there's gonna be a section that is entitled In Our Worship Life. And the point of that section is really to kind of take what we covered in the lesson and then bring it to Sunday morning. Like, where do we see what we just discussed and learned? How do we see that lived out in the life of a congregation? Um, <clears throat> so there's going to be kind of an application in that regard at the end of each of these lessons. And so if you recall, in lesson one, we looked at the two main teachings of the Bible, the law and the gospel, right? The, the bad news, the diagnosis, um, the, the, the message of the Bible that reveals and uncovers and, and shows us our, our sinfulness um, and what we truly deserve from God, and then also the gospel, the good news, that antidote, right? Um, the, the forgiveness, the grace, the compassion, the mercy, the salvation that God gives us freely through faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we see this law and gospel lived out on Sunday morning? Well, hopefully you see it everywhere. Um, that's kind of the whole point of our Sunday morning service is to just be filled with law and gospel. Because um, you really can't talk about, read, study, or learn the Bible without encountering law or gospel. The whole Bible is really um, more or less one or the other um, of those messages. And so, um, but I think probably the easiest place to see this is right near the beginning of the service. And I'm at the end of the lesson there. Um, where we do this thing called confession and absolution. We begin the service by admitting freely, openly, publicly, God, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's how I failed. Here's what I deserve. Um, and I know when people kind of first start coming to our church, um, it, it maybe is a little awkward. Um, feels a little strange that we would kind of be so open and honest about you know, how sinful we are and that we deserve God's judgment and eternal punishment. Who would say this? Who would admit this? Well, people would admit this if they know that their sins are fully forgiven in Christ. Um, people are willing to admit this when they know um, that this is what God's word says. Um, and so when you take a look in your notes there, you kind of see all of the things that we looked at when it comes to speaking the confession. Um, uh, original or inherited sin, right? I'm, I'm sinful by nature. We, we disobey God in our thoughts, words, and actions. We looked at that passage out of the heart, right? Flow, um, evil, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, greed, all of those things. Um, sins of commission, right? Doing what is evil, sins of omission, failing to do what is good, and then ultimately what we deserve because of that. But then, um, this is one of the great joys and privileges that I have um, that I get to turn around and look at everybody who has just admitted this, and I'm one of them. Um, I, I admit that, uh, uh, that, that confession of sins myself. Um, I get to be the one who looks at everybody and says, um, yes, this is true. Um, you are, I am a sinful person, and this is what you and I deserve, and yet we never will experience it. We never will receive it because Jesus already has. Um, and, and so I get to, to speak what is called the, the words of the absolution. To absolve something is to do away with it, to remove it, to take it away. Um, and the absolution is that declaration, that promise 
um, that your sins are forgiven uh, before God in heaven. So right at the beginning of the service, we're kind of, you know, smacked upside the head with this, this, this preaching of the law as we confess our sins, and yet this unmistakable proclamation of the gospel that our sins are forgiven in Jesus. Um, and, then, and then once that's settled, we can kind of get on with the rest of the service, but it's one of the very first things that we do, um, and that is why. The second thing that I wanted to point out is this question that you see on your screen. And, and that's because I've, I've gotten this question, and this is going to happen in a couple of our lessons, where um, I toss a, a question out because I've, I've gotten that question asked to me enough times over the years where I just say, you know what, this just needs to be in there because chances are somebody's going to have it. Um, and that is when we, we talk about the message of the gospel and we talk about the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, the question that oftentimes comes up is exactly this. Well, why can't God, why couldn't God just forgive? Um, why, why did it need to go to the lengths of Jesus dying on a cross? Couldn't God just say, you're forgiven, kind of wave his hand over the globe and, and everything would be great. Um, and the answer to that is, because that's not the way forgiveness works. And, and I don't mean just with God. I mean, that is also true. It's not the way forgiveness works with you and me. And so here's just kind of an example, um, my attempt to, to uh, explain that. So you see the picture there. Imagine that you loan your car to a friend, a neighbor, somebody. Um, they get in the car, they, they hit reverse when they meant to, to go and drive, and they drive through your fence, and they run over your sprinkler line, and it floods your basement, and you've got all this damage. Um, the question inevitably will come up is, who's going to pay for this? Assuming that you don't have insurance that covers this, whatever. Um, there's really one of two options, right? Um, either you make the person who did it pay for it, which makes sense, um, or you pay for it, the one who was wronged, um, or I guess you could do something like, you know, you split it 60-40 or something like that. Um, but if you, as the homeowner, are the one who is going to pay it, that would be forgiveness, right? That would you... That would be you saying to your friend, you don't have to pay for the mistake that you did. I will pay for it. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness means that you are going to pay the debt um, that someone really owes you for wronging you. Now, it's easy, I think, when you put that into kind of financial terms, right? Someone's got to pay the bill. Um, but it's a little more difficult when we start talking about the majority of ways that people sin against us and the ways that we sin against people um, is, are, are not ways that can be put into you know, monetary values. Someone says something about you behind your back and it tarnishes your reputation. Um, or somebody says something to your face and it hurts your feelings, whatever it might be. You can't really put a dollar amount on those things, right? You can't just tell your, your friend who spread a rumor about you, pay me 20 bucks you know, um, and that'll undo everything you did. But we do know this much, that when someone sins against us, they are indebted to us. We know that because we, we say that, we talk like that, because the first thing that you and I are tempted to do when someone sins against us is to what? Pay them back, right? Um, um, to get even with them right? Um, we talk about this in monetary or financial terms when, when, when someone wrongs us. 
Um, and so what then is forgiveness? Well, when someone steals something from me, uh, again, a, a good reputation, uh, an opportunity, a friendship, when someone robs me of this by, by doing something wrong or sinful, hurting me in some way, there's two options. I can try and pay them back. I can try and get even with them. I can spread um, you know, a rumor about them to try and make them feel the way that they made me feel. Um, we, we call that revenge. We call that anger. We call that bitterness. We call that jealousy, whatever it might be. All of that stuff, I can, I can vomit it right back to them. Um, which if you've done that, and you probably have, because I think we all have, you realize hopefully eventually, maybe as you, as you age and as you mature looking back on it, hopefully you realize that it doesn't, you don't get paid back, right? It, it doesn't recuperate your losses. Now all it does is it means that now you're indebted to someone else. And, and then chances are they're probably going to throw it back to you and it just is never going to stop. And, and chances are what's going to happen is it's going to spread to your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your, you know, whoever is kind of involved in, in this, um, this relationship between the two of you. Um, and it's just going to, it's going to blow up, right? Um, or the other option is you can forgive. And what does that mean? It means that you are going to bear the burden of what was lost or taken from you. It means that you are not going to insist that the person who wronged you, you're not going to insist that they write it. You're not going to insist that they pay you back what they took from you. Because again, a lot of times they can't. Um, and, and here's why that is so difficult. Here's why it's so hard to forgive is because essentially then what happens is if you're going to forgive someone, you really have to pay double. You have to pay, you have to suffer the expense of what was initially taken from you, security, peace, reputation, whatever. And then on top of it, you have to forfeit your right of trying to steal something back from them. So when people talk about, you know, how real forgiveness, anybody can just say, you know, I forgive you or don't worry about it or it's not a big deal, but real forgiveness, inner forgiveness, um, intentional forgiveness is, is probably one of the hardest things that we have to do as human beings. And that's why, because you have to pay twice. You have to pay double. Um, and that's a hard thing for, for people to do. So here's the point. Why couldn't God just forgive? Because that's not the way forgiveness works. If, if my neighbor runs over my fence and floods my basement and damages my car, I can't just go, hey, it's no big deal. Um, it's all good. And then everything just kind of magically rebuilds itself and cleans itself and goes back to the way it was. No, somebody has to pay for it. And it's the same way when it comes to real forgiveness, non-monetary forgiveness. If I hurt you and I ask you to forgive me and, and you say, I forgive you, um, it, it's not this waving of the hand and it just goes away. That, that costs you something, um, especially if I've really hurt you. That costs you something, right? Um, and so when it comes now to a world a world's worth of sinners, 
being indebted to God, stealing from him his honor, his glory, um, um, you know, his name, all of those things, when we sin against God and sin against each other, because really every sin is a sin against God, um, what's he going to do? Here are his options. He could make you and me pay for it, which is what hell is, which is what eternal punishment means, right? Or he could forgive. And what does that mean? It means that it is going to cost God. It means that he is going to have to bear the burden of the sins that were committed against him. And how does he do that? Well, he takes those sins upon himself, your sins and mine, and the sins of the entire world, and he suffers their ultimate punishment for it. Remember the passage we looked at last week, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This is the debt. This is the payment. This is what sin ultimately costs. And instead of making you and me pay it, God himself paid it in his son, Jesus Christ. So how can God say, I forgive you? He doesn't just wave his hand. He can't. Someone has to pay our sinful debt. And he didn't want to make you pay it. That's what the law says. The law says, you do the crime, you, you do the time. You pay the penalty. The gospel says God will pay it for you in Jesus Christ. And because he has paid it, forgiveness is yours. Okay? So hopefully that, that kind of helps, you know, kind of wrap your mind around this because it, it, it seems like, well, you know, God can do all things, can he? Couldn't he just, you know, say it's all good and everything just goes away? That is not the way forgiveness works. Forgiveness means bearing the burden of the sins that have been committed against you instead of making the sinner himself pay for it. And if God is actually going to forgive us, it can't be by the waving of a hand. It can't even be by just saying the words. It has to actually come by paying the ultimate price that sin incurs, and that's death. Okay, so did need, Jesus need to die? If you and I are actually going to be forgiven by God, then yes, he absolutely did. And thank God that he did and was so willing to do so. So the question that I have at work off and on is, uh, why did God do what he did? Why didn't he just leave it as a perfect world? He could have controlled Satan. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in an upcoming lesson. Okay. okay. Yeah. So the, and that's another question that I get a lot is, so yeah. um, why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and yeah, evil in the yeah. first place? Yeah. Easy answer. A really good answer, actually. And it'll come up in lesson four. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sorry about that. No, you're good. You're good. I just, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. It's a good question. It's another one that always comes up. So, all right, let's get into then lesson two, unless there are any questions before we begin. All right, lesson two is on our God of grace, striving to answer this question, what is God like? Well, a lot of people have um, answers to that question, or at least pictures in their mind of how that question should be answered. One, I think, is this, right? A picture of Father Time. Um, he's kind of like a, 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 an old grandpa, um, maybe growing a little senile. Um, you know, kind of says, do, do what I say, not what I did, wink, wink. Um, 
you, you see this on a lot of uh, like uh, Family Guy cartoons these days, uh, more kind of adult cartoons where they just kind of make a mockery of God. Um, and I think this is kind of one of those. He's just, he's too old. He's not really aware of everything that's going on. He's out of the loop, um, that kind of thing. Uh, on a little more serious note, I think there are, there are people, and not just people, but actually religions, um, who kind of tend to view God this way, that he's just an angry judge. Um, and as soon as he gets you, um, as soon as, uh, you know, he, he, he catches up to you, you're done for. Um, this is, this is the way that, that Martin Luther, for example, lived most of his uh, early life picturing God. He hated God for it um, because he thought this is who God was, just an angry judge, a Zeus-like God, deity, who just was waiting with lightning bolt in hand, um, you know, uh, looking for the opportunity to strike people down. Uh, nobody actually thinks God is a, is a rabbit, rabbit's foot, but I do think a lot of people treat him that way. Um, you know, it, it's, you, you keep him kind of in the back pocket of your life. Um, and, you know, probably 90% of the time you have no need for him. But every now and then, you know, you're up for a job promotion. Um, you put an offer on a house. You're hoping to get pregnant. Um, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, then you can just kind of pull him out of that back pocket and, you know, pr start praying to him a little bit or, you know, do whatever it, it takes to kind of just, you know, use God as you, as you need, um, as you see fit. Um, and he'll be there, you know, to kind of deliver the, the good fortunes for your life. The Lone Ranger, again, um, nobody thinks that God is the Lone Ranger, but I think people tend to view him this way. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll hear this from time to time. You know, maybe when there's like a car accident or somebody and they're interviewing somebody on the nightly news and they talk about how, you know, God must have swooped in and saved the day. We don't know anything about him. We don't know where he is. We don't know who he is. But whenever something good happens, you know, God's there to kind of, you know, put his stamp of approval on, uh, you know, he's there to save the day um, every now and then. Um, and then finally, this, 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 I think, is probably becoming one of the more popular um, depictions of God, especially in the, the Western world. And that is God, God is this kind of impersonal force. This has really grown to become, you can kind of mold God to be whoever, whatever um, you want him or her or it or they to be. Um, and so God is in um, the, the, the ocean breeze and he's in the, the warmth of the sun and, um, you know, he's this impersonal force. He's not an actual being. It's just kind of the good vibes. Um, you'll, you'll hear people say that, you know, um, you know, going in for surgery tomorrow, I would appreciate sending some good vibes my way, right? It's this impersonal, like, what does that even mean, right? It's, it's, there's, there's some force in the world that's trying to, to keep things balanced, you know, and, and, and it's just it's very impersonal, right? So I think there's, just, there's a bunch of different options, I think, that a lot of people have when it comes to who is God. And maybe you've got some pictures and, and visions <coughs> in your own mind. Um, in this lesson, what we wanna do is we really wanna come to grips with who the God of the Bible actually is. Um, he tells us more than enough about himself um, to not have to wonder or worry um, about who he is or what he's like. He makes himself very clear and very known to us on the pages of scripture. So. This is what we're going to look at in this lesson. We're going to learn what God has revealed about himself in the Bible. We're going to study his characteristics and qualities, but we're especially going to focus on the, on the Bible truth that God is triune. And what does that mean? Um, you see kind of tri and yun. We're going to look at this two words there, three in one. 
that, that the God of the Bible is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet he is only one God, okay? So with that in mind, um, just a little fun kind of opening discussion. You know, how would, how would you respond to a little child who asked you, why are alligators so mean? Um, I actually had, my son was talking about this the other day with alligators and sharks and these really aggressive um, animals in nature. Um, and it reminded me of this uh, movie part I like. I don't know if you can hear it or not, but it's um, um, alligators are so ordinary because they got all those teeth, but no toothbrush, right? Just kind of a joke. Um, you know, you're not going to tell a kid that it's because they've got an enlarged medulla oblongata in their brain, right? This part that a part of their brain that controls aggression and, and rage and, and all of that. Um, that makes them extra aggressive. Or if they ask the kids again, my just we flew last week. My one of my kids asked me this, you know, how do airplanes fly? Um, you know, you're probably not going to use words. Maybe you did, Peter, but um, most people, if we're not an aeronautical engineer, yeah, we're probably not going to use words like lift and thrust and drag and ratio and and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, what do you do if a if a three year old asks you how do planes fly? You point out the window and you say, what are those? And they say wings. And that's it, right? Planes fly because they have wings. Birds fly. Exactly, right? They get that. Um, or the dreaded, where do babies come from? Where do babies come from? Where do you think they come from? Well, I think Papa's book, he, um, he drops it down, and then, and then a hole goes in your body, and there's blood everywhere coming out of your head, and then you push your belly button, and then your butt falls off, and then you hold your butt, and you have to dig, and you find a little baby. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, whatever kids think, you kind of just go with that as long as you can, right? Instead of having to answer that question. But why is that, right? Um, why don't you give little children the direct and specific answers to their questions? Is it because you are intentionally or deceitfully trying to hide something from them? Is it because you're, you're trying to lie to them? No, it's because you understand in all of those scenarios. That, that in order to fully answer that question, you are gonna to have to use words and concepts that, that are simply going to be beyond children's ability to grasp. And so you try to find a way that you can sufficiently answer the question um, while at the same time explaining it in such a way that a child can go, okay, um, they may not get all of it, but at the same time, I think they can get enough of it, right? Um, until, until the time comes when maybe they can they can handle more of that. That's really kind of what we're dealing with when it comes to answering this question, who is the true God of the Bible? Is there only one or are there three? And in the, the discussion there, I use the example that God trying to explain to us who he is and what he's like would sort of be like trying to explain to a kindergartner calculus. Um, I, you could explain calculus to me um, today, and I'm never going to get it. Um, as a kindergartner, there's no way, right? Um, God is God, and we are not. Um, if God was the kind of God that you and I could fully comprehend, understand, grasp, completely get our arms around, then one of two things would have to be true. Either A, he would not be God, or B, you would not be human right? Um, because this is kind of the distinction. 
that God, the divine almighty being, um, is the kind of God who is so beyond our grasp and reach and ability to comprehend um, that, that we should not be able to fit him into the little box that is our mind. However, like I said, God does give us plenty. He gives us more than enough to know and to believe and to trust uh, in him that he has revealed to us in his word. So that's what we're going to look at, all right? So first things first, we're going to really kind of look at three different parts of this discussion, and here's the first one. The Bible clearly states that there is only one God, okay? A couple passages that make that clear, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, and when you look at that passage, um, this is really the Old Testament Hebrew creed. So as Christians, and we'll get to this at the end of the lesson, we have the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we say on Sunday morning. This was the Old, uh, Old Testament Israelite creed. Um, they woke up and said it every morning. And you see the Hebrew words there on the bottom of your page. Um, Hebrew reads are at the top of the page. Um, I might have switched things around. You see the letters there that you, you can't make heads or tails out of? That's Hebrew. That's what the Old Testament is written in. It reads right to left. And what it says is, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. There is only one God. Another passage, the Lord himself says this in Isaiah 43. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Okay, nothing before, nothing after. There's, there's just him. Or Isaiah 45, a couple chapters later, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. And then 1 Corinthians 8 says, there is no God but one. Okay, so the Bible is pretty clear on this, that, that um, Christianity, biblical Christianity, which is what confessional Lutheranism, which, what, which is what Prince of Peace is, Christianity is a monotheistic religion meaning that uh, mono, one, theos is the Greek word for God. Um, so, so Christianity is a monotheistic religion, um, as opposed to a polytheistic religion, like uh, ancient Greeks or um, uh, Romans, right? Where they've got all these gods, Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and, and all these things. Um, biblical Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We confess a faith in one God. Okay. However, that one God has revealed himself to be three distinct separate persons. In Matthew chapter 3, we have the account of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. And um, here's what it says Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So there in this event, 
in the water of the Jordan River, we have Jesus who's standing there being baptized. We have the Spirit of God who comes in the form of a dove. And we have God the Father speaking from heaven saying, this one, this is my son whom I love. We've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so we see these three distinct persons. We've got other passages. All the way back at the beginning of creation, we're going to look at this in our next lesson, when God uh, is making mankind, here is what he says to himself. Let us make man in our image. They're, they're already, the, in the beginning of creation, there appears to be this, this plurality to God. This one God, but there's this, there's this more than oneness to him, right? Let us make man in our image. Um, and then in Numbers chapter 6, these are the words that we conclude our, our service with almost every Sunday morning what is known as the Aaronic blessing. blessing. Um, uh, Moses uh, tells Aaron, this is how you are to bless the Israelite people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. Now, some people can just look at that and go, well, yeah, but that doesn't say there's three persons. And I agree, you're right. Um, but it's when we kind of put all of these things that we have, that the comprehensive view of the Bible, and we see this, that the name of the Lord, I mean, you feel like there could have been six or seven more sentences that, that he could have said, the Lord also, um, you know, keep you safe and, um, you know, remind you that you are his people. He, he could have just kept going with this blessing. Why three? Because this is a really common repetitive, popular number throughout the Bible when it comes to God. Um, and that name, Lord, one name, but repeated three times, is reversed now, um, actually, in this passage, in Matthew 28, verse 19. This is what is known as the Great Commission, um, where Jesus is sending out his disciples prior to his ascension into heaven, and Jesus says, you're going to grow my church, and this is how. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So in number six, we had one name and repeated three times. And in Matthew 28, verse 19, we have the exact opposite of that. The word name in this verse um, grammatically is incorrect, right? I have three kids. If, if somebody came up to me and said, what is the name of your children? That doesn't make any sense, right? They're, 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 there's three of them. Their names are, um, and, then I, and then I would give them. But this is the way that it's written, and it's intentional, because the name singular is referencing one God. And that one God is now shown in these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So in number six, we had the one, one name, and the, the uh, repeated three times. Now we have the three names and the, the singular name, right? Um, so, so this is just kind of interesting how we, we, we piece all of this together, this oneness and threeness of God. Um, the one that I skipped before, oh, it's not gonna let me do that. I'm gonna have to go through all of them, sorry. Um, I thought I could just go back one slide. Genesis 1, number 6, this one, 2 Corinthians, right? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 
be with you all, right? Bunch together again, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, um, I don't think either one of those is really that challenging, that, that there's one God, and this one God has revealed himself as, as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's where it really starts to get challenging and confusing to our ability to kind of grasp it all and comprehend it. The Bible also says that each of these three distinct persons is God himself. That the Father is 100% God, the Son is 100% God, the Holy Spirit is 100% true God. It's not as though you, they're, they're each kind of part God and you got to put them all together to get full God. Um, no, the Father is the one true God. The Son is the one true God. The Holy Spirit is the one true God. And here's some passages that, that reference the Father. Jesus is praying um, in John chapter 17, and he says this, this is eternal life. And he's praying to the Father, and he says that they may know you, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, Jesus makes it sound like God the Father is the only God right? But there are passages in the Bible that also say this about Jesus. In 1 John chapter 5, John says, we are in him who is true. And it's talking about God the Father. And then it says, even in his son, Jesus Christ, he, meaning Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. Um, almost the exact same thing about Jesus that Jesus said about the Father. Or how about this in Romans 9? St. Paul writes, from Israel is traced the human ancestry of Christ. So if you want to know Jesus' ancestry, his genealogy, you can go in the book of Matthew, you can look in the, in the gospel of Luke, you can look in either one of those books, and it'll take you all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam. From this people of Israel, from this nation of Israel, the human ancestry of Christ came. And we're going to talk about this um, uh, in, in later on, how Jesus himself is unique, because Jesus is both true God and true man, right? So he's got this human ancestry that Jesus was a real man born in, in time as a human being. But he is also this, Paul writes, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. Okay, one more. Colossians chapter 1 says he, and, and you can look up the context if you want, but I, I just do this to save time and to kind of get it all on one screen. But, but the he is referencing back to Jesus. This whole first chapter is talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Um, and here's what, what, what St. Paul writes. He says he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So God is, as we're going to see in just a few minutes when we get into God's profile, God is spirit. Spirits are invisible. They don't have bodies. They don't take up space. But Jesus does. Jesus is. Um, and so he is the visible image of the invisible God. So that when you see Jesus, you are looking at God. Um, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, now look, listen to the things that credits to Jesus. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Okay, that's God. All right. And then the Holy Spirit. 
Um, Second Corinthians, oh, just missed it. Come on. There it is. Okay. Oh, am I really going to have to go through all these? I'm sorry. I'm screwing this up. Forget which ones are auto, which ones are not. Father, son, one, two, three. Here we go. The Holy Spirit is God. Okay. Second Corinthians chapter three. Um, Paul writes, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Or you can look back to, to the, the passage before um, uh, the, the baptism of Jesus, right? When it says the spirit of God descended in the form of a dove, right? The Holy Spirit is God. So it's sort of like this. You can see it in your notes there, uh, Bible math, right? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit means that is the one true God, right? The Trinity. Um, so it's sort of like one plus one plus one equals one. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses have one plus one plus one, and they make it three. Three, yeah, yeah. yeah but my argument to them, I remember, I said, well, look, you don't know your uh, heavenly mathematics or arithmetic. <laughs> right. It's one times one times one. Yeah. It's still one. Right, right. And I, yeah, I've, I've heard people use that one too. Um, I, I like doing this one because um, I like acknowledging the fact that it challenges. Here's what scripture says. Um, and and it, it, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make it's sense. It's heavenly arithmetic. But it doesn't mean that because I can't comprehend it, that all of a sudden it's false, yeah. right? Because again, that puts me in a position that says, I mean, nothing else works that way, right? I mean, I can't comprehend how somebody could go to the moon, how somebody could run a marathon for crying out loud, right? But just because I can't comprehend it doesn't mean it's not true, right? Um, I mean, think of just the arrogance that that takes, that I'm the one, and this is really kind of the, in the, the post-postmodern um, era that you and I are living in right now, this is the way that we, we unfortunately have kind of taken truth to be truth is all subjective so what's true for me might not be true for you right so i determine what my own truth is um nothing in the world works that way there is truth and there is a lie right um and so when it regardless of what i want to be true or think to be true there is truth and then there is a lie um and this is the truth of scripture right it doesn't matter if if if, if it doesn't make sense to me it doesn't matter if if I can't crunch the numbers, um, this is what, what the Bible plainly says. Um, and so you fill in the blanks here, right? While we cannot fully understand how this is possible, the Trinity allows everything that God has written about himself to be true. And I think that is the best way to describe this. The doctrine of the Trinity, while incomprehensible to fallen human beings, is the only explanation that allows everything that God has revealed about himself in his word to be true. So if you drop one of those three um, sections that we just brought up, um, no, there is not one God, there's three gods, and each of them is true God. You can take those last two and you can make perfect sense of it, but now you have a polytheistic religion. You have three gods. You, you can take the first one, there's only one God, 
and even the second one, that one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and just say, well, sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. Or you can say they're each kind of 33.3% God. You can make those two make sense logically, but you can't make all three make sense. So here's the question then. Which of those three do you want to give up so that you can better understand God, but at the same time, then call that very same God who has revealed himself in the Bible to be a liar about himself, right? Um, so, so it's kind of take it or leave it. This is who God says he is. No, I can't comprehend it fully. But I can look at it and say, this is true, this is true, this is true, because this is what God says, and this is who God is. And I can believe it. I can trust that this God does not lie to me. Um, it'll, it's the only thing that allows everything that God has written about himself to be true. There is only one God. That's where we get the, the unity in Trinity, who reveals himself in three complete distinct persons. Um, that's the tri, okay? Tri-unity, Trinity, triune God, Trinity. Um, that's where it comes from. Biblical math, I like this kind of what you just referenced, Peter. Uh, Luther says this. He's not talking about the Trinity. He's, he's more or less just talking about what do I do when what God says in his word does not mesh with my, my, my reason, my human logic. Do I trust myself or do I trust God? And here's what Luther says. When I hear the word, I believe it, even though I am unable to fully understand it and get it into my head. I am able to logically understand that two plus five is seven and let no one tell me anything else. However, if God were to tell me in his word, no, it is eight, then I will believe him contrary to my logic and reason. For I rely on him, that is God, whom I regard as far wiser and far better at counting than I. And although I too am able to count, I will serve him by believing and what he says will be the truth to me even though all the world speaks otherwise. So this is where I'd come back to the Bible math. One plus one plus one is one, right? Um, I count it, it says three. Um, God says it's one. So it's one, right? I like this, uh, I read, but if you try to explain Trinity, I think what uh, it says, you lose your mind, but it, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. So here I think is, uh, we've got a couple of pictures there on the top of the page, the Trinity expressed in art. Um, there are different ways that artists have tried to depict this truth and, and none of them are perfect. They're, they all fail in one way or another um, because if we could just draw a picture of it, then it really wouldn't be that hard to comprehend. But I think the absolute best we can come up with is this one right here. And you can fill in the blanks in your notes with this. If you're going to explain the relationship between father and son, what are you going to put on that line? Um, oh, I'm sorry. Start with, with, with God. The father is God, right? We looked at those passages. That was kind of part three um, of the sections that we looked at. The son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Each of those are filled in with um, is, right? The, this one true God has revealed himself in these three persons. And yet, the father is not the son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The voice speaking from heaven is not the dove. 
And the dove is not the man in the water being baptized. Right? There, there are three separate distinct persons. Um, so I think this is probably the best that we can come up with that again, lets everything, there is only one God right there, the, the heart and core of it. And that one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit, is not the Father. Um, this right here is, is, a, is a very simple way of kind of, um, you know, diagramming or depicting everything that we just looked at. We've got a couple other pictures there as well. Um, the one on the right-hand side with the three pictures, the, the dove, of course, is the easy one. That's always the Holy Spirit. It's really the only, it's the only visible manifestation we have of the Spirit. So whenever you want to do a picture of the Holy Spirit, this is the only thing we can do. It's the only way we've ever seen him. Um, the hand that's there in the picture, that kind of comes from that famous painting, the hand of God, right? You, you picture the hand of God, the, the creator, the father. And then the one on the left that looks kind of like a P with a cross, that is the, the symbol known as the key row. Um, we have this picture on the front of our, our new hymnals too. Um, it's, it's a, it looks a little different, but it's called the key row. And it's the abbreviation um, for the name Christ. So if you've ever had to sign your initials on something or abbreviate your name, right? Usually we do first initial of first and last name, right? Or first, middle, and last name. Well, the way they did it in the ancient world when they didn't have surnames, they didn't have last names, was you would do the first two or three letters of your name. Um, and so this right here, the key row, are the first two letters in Greek for the name Christ. The first letter is an X, which is like uh, kind of our hard C sound, CH uh, sound, like Christ or Christmas or character. Um, and then the P looking letter is actually the Greek letter Rho, um, which looks like a P, but sounds like our R. Um, so it is the, the, the first two letters, the key row is the first two letters in the name Christos or Christ. Um, so if you ever see that symbol, it's a picture, a symbol for Jesus. All right. Um, what questions do you have uh, up to this point? I know I've been kind of going through a lot of stuff, but I wanted to just get to this part. Um, and then if there are no questions, we will keep going with the profile. Someone, uh, I got a note here. What was God doing before he created the universe? You know, again, <clears throat> this was it really ties into the Trinity because he was obviously fellowship. The God was fellowshipping with right. the father, son, and Holy spirit. Right. Right. And, and Augustine had the answer preparing help for people who ask such a question. <laughs> that's, that's just good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's one of those things when people ask the question, why did God create? Yeah. And the answer for that. Um, is oftentimes given, well, God created because he wanted someone to relation with. He wanted someone to worship him. Um, so God created, you know, someone to give him glory and honor and praise. But that only works if God is a uniperson God, a lonely God. But the fact that we have a tri-person God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect unity and fellowship with each other. 
let us make man in our image. He wasn't alone, right? He had this perfect fellowship already, right? God didn't create us because he needed something, as if he was lacking something, right? Um, so I think, yeah, that's, that's, it's a, it is an interesting question, um, but I, I do like <laughs> yeah. Augustine's answer. That's good. All right, um, let's get into God's profile then, kind of, you know, carrying the theme. I do have one question. Okay. And, you know, when we sing hymns and, you know, Spirit of the Living God, Spirit, a lot of our hymns have spirit. It doesn't talk about Son and God as much as I've noticed a lot of Spirit. Yet, you ask the average Christian, say, do you pray much to the Spirit? And they kind of feel uncomfortable. Why am I, why am I praying to the spirit? Yeah. I'd rather praise to Jesus or to God, not the spirit. Yeah. So why is that? I mean, we're, they're all equal. I mean, if, right. you pray, if you said, I always just pray to the spirit, then God wouldn't be saying, well, you, you missed the boat on it. Yeah. You know? I think um, there was a book I read on this a number of years ago that, that kind of talked about how um, different religions who who deal with the bible emphasize and highlight typically one person of the trinity over another interesting and and so you you get someone like uh you know judaism obviously they wouldn't say they're 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 christian nor are they trinity um, but for them yahweh right um that is that is the father right the creator god um, mormons would emphasize heavenly father right that is the one true god um uh, when it comes to the spirit you've got um kind of you've got pentecostal right um the gifts of the spirit speaking in tongues to a degree methodists i would say are probably that way um but i think most biblical christian kind of foundational um you know denominations and and this would include lutheranism um emphasize jesus um and and the reason for that is what we see in scripture um <clears throat> when jesus points to the old testament and says these were all written about me these all point to me when we, we read through in our Wednesday night Bible class on the book of Hebrews, yeah. and the, the title of the book is not God the Father is superior to, Jesus right, it's, but it's Jesus, right? It's the emphasis that, that Jesus really is kind of the focal point because he is the one that the Father has chosen to be the Savior of mankind. Um, and not that we elevate, we don't focus on Jesus to the detriment of the Father or the Spirit, meaning we've got We've kind of created in our worship life a hierarchical approach to God. We, we dare never do that. But, um, but when it comes to our preaching, when it comes to our, you know, um, our, 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 our study of scripture, when it comes to our um, absolution, right, this, this comes in the name of Jesus Christ. All of those things is because we, we tend to talk the way the scriptures talk. And I, kind of a, a good analogy, I think, that was pointed out to me once, and we're going to get to bad Trinity analogies at the end of the lesson. This isn't really an, an analogy, so to speak, but I think just to kind of explain how is it that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit kind of work together in this Godhead? And this kind of helped me, I think, is 
um, to picture a movie set. The director is God the Father. He's the one who came up with the script. He came up with the plan. This is when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Father, if there's any other way that I can kind of carry out your plan, um, let it be, but not my will, your will be done. You're the director, right? Kind of you're in charge. Um, Jesus is the, is the lead actor. He's the one with the camera's on. He's the star of the show. Um, he's the one that everything is written and pointed. He's the one that you see, right? He's the one on the cross. He's the one at the empty tomb. It's all of those, right? Jesus is the lead. Um, who's the Holy Spirit? This is kind of good. Um, the Holy Spirit is like the producer, which is, is, I think, when it comes to movies, probably one of the you know, least heralded and praised positions. And yet, if you talk to anybody in the movie business, without a good producer, it doesn't matter how good your actor is, doesn't matter how good the director is, the movie's going to look like trash, right? It's really the producer who's tasked with the job of taking what the actor did and making sure that you see it. Right? that you see it the way that it's meant to be seen, that the message that the director wrote is conveyed and communicated so that you can understand it. Right? And I thought that was really kind of an interesting way to how do each of these function? So why do we focus on Jesus? Well, because he's the one on the screen. He's the one that we see. Um, he's the one in front of us. Right. Um, so it, it's not that we do that, hopefully, thinking that, well, Jesus is way up here, and the Father and the Holy Spirit are way down here. No, I would say go back and read the Athanasian Creed, right, or any of the creeds, really, um, but specifically that one, which talks about how, um, right, that, that none, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, none of them have more or less glory or honor than the other. None is more or less God than the other, um, and so they all deserve our honor, glory, and praise as one true God. I was telling one of the guys, I said, you know, the Holy Spirit's pretty important because without that, you would never see Jesus because you nope. without that. So yep. that that pecking yep. order is pretty uh, yeah. significant. Yeah. Without the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah. Jesus is not Jesus to you. Right. And uh, it's the difference between looking at Jesus as a good moral teacher who lived a long time ago and seeing him as your Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can bring you to that point, right? Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Good question. Oh, one other thing. Uh, we talk about one in essence. Explain that. I, I have a problem with that that word, uh, or it's it's in depth meaning. How how do we uh, evaluate God is in one essence? Yeah. Um, essence, think about it as um, sort of like a, uh, like a chemical composition, right? Um, right, right. So think of it in that way, um, right? If, if you've got different, um, you know, uh, uh, what are they called? Um, you know, you've got hydrogen and you've got oxygen, yeah, right? It's different elements, right? Um, when we say that God is of one essence, we, we don't want people to think, well, the Father is, is like a spirit, and then Jesus is something totally different, right? And then there's the spirit who's another thing, um, the, the, the essence of God. What makes God God is Jesus is, is of that essence, and the Father is of that same essence, and the Holy Spirit is of that same essence, 
um, that the composition, if you could, you know, somehow, you know, boil God down to, you know, this many hydrogen atoms and this many, like it would be the same for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? But it is appropriate to talk about God as one in essence. Yes, very much so. Yeah, because this is something that we're going to look at later on. Um, later on, when we get into those bad Trinity analogies, when someone says, for example, that God is like an egg. You've got the hard shell, you've got the white, and then you've got the yolk. Well, the yolk, the white, and the, and the shell are not made of the same essence. Right. They're, they're three totally different substances right um and so that's an example where somebody would just look at it and go well yeah you got those three but it's one egg yeah but is just the yolk an egg no it's not it's a yolk is just the shell an egg no it's just a shell so this is where you would say no god is not like an egg because the father the son and the holy spirit are of the same essence and the yolk the white and the shell are not right so, so that would be where that would kind of break down. So it's vitally important to acknowledge. If there's only one true God, then how can he be of three essences? Yeah. If you're talking about multiple essences, you're talking about plural gods. You're talking about a polytheistic religion. So, so yeah, this is the way the, creed, the ancient creeds speak, that God is of one essence with the Father and the Son. Right? When we talk about that in the Athanasian Creed, that's why. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. And that's eight o'clock. So I, this is a good, good, it's a good spot to stop. Um, we'll pick up with the, the qualities of God, um, some of his characteristics next time. I don't want to rush through those. Um, so we'll stop here and we'll, uh, we'll pick up next week. Uh, before we do though, are there any questions that you have on your mind? Um, I can either try and answer them now or we can start with it next week. Or if you do write it down in your notes and bring it up when we start next week, we can do that as well. All right. Well, thanks for coming tonight and uh, hope to see everybody again next week. Take care.